on their mother's birthday while Classic. they were having a, <laughs> a birthday party for Lucy in the Lion House. Susie and her older sister Dora slipped away, met up with Dora's boyfriend, and Dora and her boyfriend eloped while Susie stood as the lookout. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for joining us today. We will be discussing Chapter 26, For the Best Good of Zion. And joining us again today is our friend, Lisa Olson-Tate. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, thanks for having me. Lisa, we had you in our last episode, and we're grateful that you'd come back and join us again today. We start this chapter off with the Godbeites. We met them in previous chapters. And at the beginning of this chapter, we have kind of a poignant moment here with a man by the name of, I'm not sure if it's Amasa or Amasa Lyman. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But he has a son, Francis Marion Lyman, who's about 30 years old at this time. He's known by his friends as Marion, and he's going to be someone we'll meet later, chapters and so forth. But Amasa, or Amasa, chooses to join or affiliate himself with this new so-called Church of Zion. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Amasa Lyman had been a leader in the church for decades. He was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. And just before the point that we pick up the story here, just a few years earlier, he had actually been released from the Quorum for what they termed apostasy. He had some unorthodox ideas and was not willing to reconcile himself to his brethren. And so he becomes involved with Godby and Harrison in this Church of Zion, this new movement, as they called it at the time, and decides to affiliate with them. And as we show in this scene, this is just heartbreaking to Marion, his son. He's about 30 years old at this time, so he's a fairly young man. He's been raised in the church, raised in the gospel, seen his father as a leader in the church, and to see him fall away and take this different path was just incredibly painful and difficult for him. I think that there's probably a lot of us, a lot of our listeners, who can identify with this moment where we see Marion going over to his dad and trying to reason with him and work yeah. through this and let's talk about your concerns. And eventually, as it says in the book, he tried to reason with him, but soon it was just too heartsick to argue and he fled the room and wept for hours. Yeah. He just realizes there's nothing I can do here to change the way he's making his decisions right now. But it doesn't change the way Marion Lyman chooses to live his life either. That's right. And we do see in later chapters that although it doesn't affect Marion's, you know, activity and his conviction, it is something that is hard for him, you know, his relationship yeah. with his dad and his dad's relationship with the church. But I think it's amazing that he is able to still be so dedicated and have so much faith. Surrounding this situation, the leaders of the church don't seem like they're doing too much about this new movement. And it seems like the focus is on strengthening the saints. I just love this quote from Brigham Young. He says, we have got the gospel, he said, but if we expect to receive the benefits of it, we have got to live according to its precepts. So he's kind of saying, don't bother with the dissenters, but focus on yourself and how you're following the example of Jesus Christ and living the gospel. Yeah, which is good counsel in any generation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
So we see another man. Um, in the previous chapter, we had a missionary and his cousin who visited Martin Harris and offered assistance to bring him west. And at first, Martin was a little reluctant, saying, you know, Brigham wouldn't give a nickel for me. I'm paraphrasing. but <laughs> Right, right. But they do. They provide some assistance, and Martin arrives in town. And uh, let's just listen to a little quote here from the book about Martin speaking at the tabernacle. The Spirit told me that I might just as well plunge myself into the water as to have any one of the sects baptize me. So I remained until the church was organized by Joseph Smith, the prophet. The following month, Martin bore witness of the truth and divine origin of the Book of Mormon at the church's October General Conference. What I love most about this experience is that so George A. Smith is there, and he's recognizing Martin Harris having given so much time and money and effort into the building of the kingdom. However, he says, it's so remarkable to have this testimony, but the Book of Mormon carries evidence with it, and the promise has been fulfilled that those who do the will of God should know of the doctrine that it is true. Thus, the Book of Mormon has thousands of witnesses. So while he's acknowledging, you know, it is incredible to have Martin Harris here, and he's back, you know, this is great. He's saying, you're almost just as much of a witness as the Book of Mormon because of that evidence. And I just think that's such an incredible thing that we can apply to us too, that we're all witnesses of the Book of Mormon, those of us who have received that truthfulness of it. Yeah, we could say millions of witnesses today. Yeah. It's very much like the Savior's counsel to Thomas. I'm paraphrasing, but blessed are you, Thomas, because you saw, but more blessed right. are those who will believe and yet did not see. I feel a little bit of that from George A. Smith as saying, we're so grateful to have this witness of the Book of Mormon here, but all of you are witnesses. So turning to a different subject in the chapter, we have one of our favorite characters, people in the book, Sousa or Susie Young. Can you tell us what's going on and how old is she at this point? And tell us about this really interesting experience that happens with her. <laughs> Well, you may remember that we met Susie when she was nine years old and running around with asthma. And Brigham reaches out and puts his hand on her chest and tells her daughter, breathe, slow down, which I thought is just a lovely human moment for Brigham and for her. So we're about five years later now, and Susie is 14 years old. And as we meet her in this chapter, she and her mother and her younger sister, Mabel, are part of one of these journeys to the south with Brigham Young, only this time they're moving down to St. George for good. And it's coming at a really fraught moment for Susie and her mother and her sisters, because just a few weeks earlier, in early October of this year, actually on their mother's birthday, while Classic. they were having <laughs> a, a birthday party for Lucy in the Lion House, Susie and her older sister Dora slipped away, met up with Dora's boyfriend, and Dora and her boyfriend eloped while Susie stood as the lookout, so to speak. And to boot, Ma married they were, by a Protestant minister. Yep, to boot, they were married by a Protestant minister. Yeah, just to rub some more salt in it. Oh, my yeah. Dora was a few years older than Susie, and she was a very beautiful girl, very talented in music and drama and things like that. And she had been keeping company with this young man named Morley Dunford for quite some time. And he came from a really good family. The, the Dunfords 
were and still are a very distinguished family within the church. But this young man had a drinking problem, and we don't know all that much about it, but there may have been some other things about him that Brigham and Lucy were concerned about. So it seems that the plan to move Lucy and her three daughters down to St. George was in part an effort to get 300 miles between Dora and Morley. And as young people will often do, they just kind of preempted the plans of their parents. Help us understand the mindset a little bit here. I know we can't go inside their heads and figure it out, but what in the yeah. world were they thinking? And what, <laughs> why, would, why would they? It seems like to me, Susie's a bit of a romantic. And, oh, yeah. and so is her sister, Dora. It's so magical. Or, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. What are they thinking? Am I reading too much into that? Well, insofar as we can engage in some informed speculation, I think, yes, absolutely. Susie and her sisters, and she had many sisters. People don't fully realize this. Maybe this will come up later when we talk about the organization of the young women, but Brigham Young's household was really a house full of females, (laughs) to borrow a phrase. He had more daughters than sons, and at this point, these girls are coming of age. And so this young family is full of young women with their balls and the theater and music and dancing, you know, and all of the things that young women were interested in at that time. So Susie and Dora had grown up going and watching these plays about romance and things like that. Susie later describes herself as a very imaginative child. And she talks in particular about one book that she just loved, which was the story of a plain girl who is swept away by a prince. Mm -hmm. And then she's watching as her older sisters are finding their loves and being married. And so she's just 14 years old, very romantic, totally enthralled by these whole scenarios. Now, by the time they're traveling down to St. George, she's had a few weeks to see the fallout from what happened. and to maybe start to develop just a little bit different of a perspective on it. I do appreciate having these glimpses into her personality and these experiences that kind of led her to who she was as an adult. So she and her family are traveling down to St. George. Can you just tell us a little bit about the significance of St. George? As we talked about in the last episode, Brigham Young would often go down to southern Utah over the winter and spend the colder months down there in a little bit better climate. At this point, there's been settlements in southern Utah and St. George for a number of years, and it's pretty remote at this point. It took a lot of faith and dedication. The people who stayed and settled down there were some of the strongest, most stalwart members of the church, and they had to be because the conditions were so difficult. Interestingly, this is also a time where Brigham Young is moving several of his wives from living in the communal atmosphere of the Lion House off into homes of their own. And Susie, or Sousa, later says that he told her that he thinks he maybe should have done that from the beginning. And so for Lucy to go down to St. George, this means she's going to have a home of her own. And it means that she's going to have one-on-one time with her husband in a way that she doesn't get very often. And so it's kind of personally significant in that way. But then, of course, when they get down to St. George over the course of that winter, there are some significant developments for the church as a whole that Brigham Young begins to implement. Tell us about one of those in particular in January 1871, a meeting that is held 
and an idea is discussed among the saints there in St. George. Yeah, this is when Brigham Young initiates the effort to build a temple in southern Utah. And this is going to be the first full-fledged temple in Utah. And one thing that we should remember or may not fully appreciate is how involved Brigham Young had been in the implementation of temple ordinances clear back in the days of Nauvoo. Joseph Smith had done the best he could to get those conveyed to Brigham and the other leaders of the church, but then he specifically had told Brigham, now, this is not arranged perfectly. You take it and put it in order. And so Brigham had had this stewardship over the ordinances of the church, both because of that call to Joseph and then because of his position as the president of the church. And since they got to Utah, it had been a driving priority and concern to reestablish temple worship, but because of the circumstances, it hadn't yet been possible to do that in a full-fledged way. And so this is a really significant step now towards that goal. When Brigham Young returns in the fall of 1871 to St. George, ground is broken. And one thing I learned in Saints I hadn't understood before is when they broke ground, they did what we know as the Hosanna Shout. Yeah. Many of us, members of the church, will have participated in a temple dedication either, if we're lucky, directly, but often by satellite transmission. And we've been in our local chapel. We have our white handkerchief. Was this something that was done at groundbreakings in the past? Do we still do that? Or has it become just part of the dedication ceremony? You know, there's an interesting history there that we actually probably need to know more about. But I do know that in this period, they would occasionally do that Hosanna shout on other occasions than just at the dedication per se, kind of marking the milestones along the way. So we see that here. I can't remember if we actually show that in the chapters about the Salt Lake Temple, but I believe they also did a Hosanna shout at the capstone ceremony a year before the temple was dedicated. So it wasn't completely unusual. If you've been to St. George and you come into the little valley there and the temple is so white and it's so beautiful against the red rocks, the next time I'm there, I will remember a place before that temple existed and a group of people, really pretty audacious people with a handkerchief in hand shouting, Mm -hmm. Hosanna, we're going to build a temple. Yeah. It's amazing. I love learning about that in Saints. And my guess is that they really shouted. The way we do it now is wonderful, and it's a little bit more of a ritualized thing. But my sense is that when they said shout, they shouted, and that it was a true expression of the joy and the excitement that they felt. Because remember, a lot of these people, like Erastus Snow, had received temple ordinances earlier and knew what it meant to finally be able to have that available again in its full form. Another part of this chapter involves a new chief justice in Utah. Can you tell us about James McKean? Yeah, he comes in with something of an agenda. He's appointed as one of the territorial officials. He's appointed to be the the head judge in Utah, and he comes in determined that we're going to assert federal power and we're going to crack down on what he calls theocracy or the power of the church in Utah. Let's listen to a little quote here from the book that I think Judge McKean pretty well tips his hat about what he's going to do as chief justice. During the hearing, McKean revealed that he saw the case not as a trial of Brigham's innocence or guilt, 
but as a crucial battle in a war between the saints' revelations and federal law. While the case at bar is called The People versus Brigham Young, he stated, its other and real title is Federal Authority versus Polygamic Theocracy. He was not interested in being an impartial judge. In his eyes, the prophet was already guilty. So Brigham at this time is actually on trial. He was arrested for his plural marriages and for living with more than one wife. But what does this mean for the future? Well, this case kind of foreshadows the kind of legal wrangling that the saints are going to be involved in for the next couple of decades, where the federal government is going to bring all its powers and efforts to bear on wiping out plural marriage. But also, as Judge McKean has indicated here, a lot of what's done under the guise of wiping out polygamy is also to try to curb what they see as the economic and the political power of the church in Utah. That's kind of the overarching goal in a lot of the efforts. And McKean is just bold enough to say it out loud, but in a lot of the future efforts, it'll be the subtext to what's going on. Lisa, in our previous episode and in chapter 25, we had learned about retrenchment. Tell us about how retrenchment's going across the territory. Well, we get a really lovely little glimpse of that in the first scene of this chapter with these sisters in Sanaquin who prepare a simple meal of brown bread and soup and then report back on how successful this retrenchment thing was. So it shows that these ideals and principles of retrenchment are being spread and are taking hold. We have to wonder, though, how this message of retrenchment sounded in some of these outlying, more remote communities where maybe you only had one dress or maybe you're living pretty close to the subsistence level to begin with. And so what does retrenchment look like there? There's a great story. It might be apocryphal. I really hope it's true. I think it is, actually, that originates in St. George, which we'll talk about later in this chapter where a woman remembered these fancy women from Salt Lake coming down to this dirt-poor settlement in St. George and preaching retrenchment. The way that she tells the story is we looked at them with their satin ribbons and their velvet dresses, and I raised my hand and I said, well, Sister Young, what would you like us to retrench from, the bread or the molasses? (laughs) And that kind of indicates how the principles were important, but the implementation may have been a little bit uneven and the the message may have been more or less applicable in different settings. Well, in another community, they mentioned taking off the lace and the frills from their dresses and yeah. it left marks of where they had yes. those those things. So it would have been so different. That's Brigham Young's daughters, and we'll see that here pretty soon in an upcoming chapter. During the trial and everything that's happening around plural marriage, I thought it was interesting, John Taylor's perspective, he does not want Brigham Young to surrender. And he's just kind of having these flashbacks of he was actually in Carthage jail with Joseph Smith. And so you can imagine from his point of view just how traumatic and terrifying this prospect could be of Brigham Young being convicted. 
Yeah, and I think if we remember back to what the saints had gone through in Missouri and Illinois in, in earlier days, I think it can help us understand the intensity of their response when they come under opposition again, this time for plural marriage. And this time it plays out more on the legal level and the cultural level. But the saints are determined to defend themselves and to support each other. And unfortunately, it's something that they've been through before. Mm -hmm. And so while they do have a lot of fear just in reading this chapter, it does seem, especially from Brigham Young, that they seem confident that things are just going to work out. So we'll look forward to learning more about what happens. Thank you, listeners, for joining with us today. And thank you, Lisa, for being with us again. We appreciate you and your team for all of your great work on Saints Volume 2. Invite our listeners to join us again next time where we'll talk about another one of the chapters from Saints Volume 2. And as always, we invite your feedback by emailing saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.